Welcome to the Drum Shuffle, a podcast offering insights, perspectives, and conversations for drummers. I'm your host, Jamie Eads. What's happening, everybody? Welcome to the Drum Shuffle, episode number 16. Jamie Eads joining you as always. Thanks so much for tuning in. We really do appreciate it. We got a great episode today. We have an hour long conversation with Liberty DeVito. Liberty's new band is the Lords of 52nd Street, uh, along with the longtime rhythm section uh, from Billy Joel's band of 29 and a half years. That's where you know Liberty from, most likely likely. Uh, so we're going to be joined by him here in just a second. So please stay tuned. Lost Cabos drumsticks may be the best kept secret from drummers today. Lost Cabos drumsticks makes the finest tools to touch a drummer's hands in the business. The best news, almost every popular stick size is available in both white hickory and red hickory. If you don't know what red hickory is, it's made from the heartwood of the hickory tree, unlike regular white hickory, which is made from sapwood. Red Hickory drumsticks will hold up to even the hardest hitting drummers. Their durability comes from the density of the wood, but they do not sacrifice the feel. Please visit LosCabosDrumsticks.com to learn more about their products. And don't forget to ask at your favorite retailer for Los Cabos drumsticks. All right, guys, we're absolutely delighted to be joined today by Liberty DeVito. You will hear me reference to this, but Liberty played on all those classic Billy Joel records, uh, selling over 150 million copies. So Liberty uh, certainly knows a thing or two uh, about uh, playing drums for a songwriter. His nickname is actually the songwriter's drummer. Uh, so I, we really don't need to to introduce him. He's just such a great guy, a true historian of music, um, and we just had just a fantastic conversation. So I hope you'll enjoy it. Uh, we're pleased to be joined by Liberty DeVito. Good evening, Liberty. How are you today? I'm very, very good. I mean, spring is here in New York City. Well, you know, it, it took a little while for spring to arrive down here in the bluegrass state, but we're finally starting to get a little bit of warmth and the rain has gone away. So, uh, you know, uh, we're lucky. I, we're lucky, right? I, I think I think the calendar is shifting. I think, uh, like, eventually we're going to be like Australia is, you know, where they have Christmas in the summertime. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because I don't know if you've noticed, but even Christmas has been, like, really warm. Yeah. You know, and it, and it did take time for spring to hit. It, it did indeed. And, you know, Mother Nature has a mind of her own. So, um, you know, we, we're, we're all just passengers on this uh, third rock from the sun, right? Exactly. Exactly. We're just riding this big ball and uh, who knows where it'll take us. Absolutely. Well, listen, Lib, we really do appreciate you taking the time to come on the drum shuffle. I am absolutely honored to be talking to you tonight. Uh, I have been just such a big fan of your playing for years and years. And, well, you know, you. oh, you're welcome. Um, you know, you picked up a nickname over the years, the songwriter's drummer. And, you oh, know, right, right. you know, I have always said, 
you know, I don't have every chop in the world in my arsenal. So I want to play for the song. You know, I mean, that's that's what I try to do as a drummer. And, you know, I have emulated your stuff for for many, many years. So if you're okay with it, let's go back to the beginning. Um, Obviously, you're a New York guy. And it's my understanding that the Beatles, like so many guys of your generation, the Beatles changed your life, right? Well, well, yes, they did. But we got to go back even earlier than that. Okay. Uh, Yeah. Like, um, you know, it's funny because I don't know why I started with the drums. Uh, uh, my parents bought me drums, and, and later on in life, I asked my dad, why did you get me drums? And he said, because they didn't make Prozac when you were a kid. <laughs> 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 That's fantastic. So, um, yeah. <laughs> so, um, I, was, I never knew why I started the drums. I always loved music. I always, we, we, I bought 45s. The first 45 I ever bought was a, a song called Book of Love by the Monotones. And uh, I used to mow lawns when I was a kid. And you'd get like two bucks to mow a lawn, maybe four bucks if it was a corner house. And uh, I used to go right to the record store and buy 45s. And, you know, I loved music all the time. And I'd sing along with these records and stuff like that. And then when I got the drum set, I would try to play to them. And uh, I was in sixth grade at the time. And so uh, they put me in the sixth grade school band. And the first thing the teacher wanted me to do was the buzz roll through the entire Star Spangled Banner. And I couldn't do it. And he said, put the sticks down, DeVito. You'll never do anything with the drums. Oh, well. Just because I, just <laughs> because I couldn't do that buzz roll. Famous you know? last words, right? Yeah. So I got very discouraged uh, about that. You know, I, I still always loved music. The drums were in my room and stuff like that. And then so but life went on and uh, I get into junior high school and I'm walking around junior high school in the eighth grade. And, and it's like I'm seeing these other beings called girls and I really want to meet them. And but the girls in my high school, they liked uh, all the guys that played sports. Yeah. And I tried playing. I tried playing baseball, but uh, you know, I swear the ball was coming to me, and and it landed like about twenty feet away from me. That's when I found that I had to wear glasses. So here I am in school with these in in, in the early sixties. It's like Coke bottle glasses, you know. Yeah. And I don't play sports, and so how am I going to meet girls? That's when February '64. There they were in black and white on the Ed Sullivan Show, The Beatles. Yeah, you know? and, and the girls reacted to those guys, right? I mean, you know. Well, so, well this, this, this is how this is how I say it. I say that that there I was looking at the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show, and I noticed that when the camera panned off the Beatles and onto the crowd, all these girls were screaming, standing on the seats, screaming at these not that good looking guys. And then I looked at my sister and her friends in the in the room with me, and they're screaming at a black and white TV at these not that good looking guys. And I thought, okay. Forget the buzz roll. That's what I want to do. And that, <laughs> I got serious, you know. Sure. Well, now, did in your early years, you know, you had drums. Did you take lessons from guys there in in Brooklyn, or did you were you no. self taught? No. Well, first of all, I'm living on Long Island by now. Because, oh, okay. Uh, my father, my father was a New York City policeman. He worked in Brooklyn, so he moved us out of Brooklyn. Uh, it was getting rough in the '60s and '70s, or something like that. But anyway, um, 
uh, so after I see the Beatles, I'm, I'm thinking, okay, I can play the drums. I want to do what that guy does. So my mother sent me for lessons again at a local store. And the guy was teaching me jazz. And he, he I said, what are you going to teach me how to play like Ringo? And he said, what do you want to learn to play like Ringo for? He stinks. <laughs> and I was like, well, I saw all these girls screaming for him last night. And I don't see anybody beating down your door today. You know, and it's like. So that was the end of my lessons right there. I knew he wasn't going to teach me. And back then, uh, in 64, guys, you know, they were really holding on to jazz and big band. And they didn't think the Beatles, would, they thought they would be a flash in the pan. They were going to be here today and gone tomorrow. Right. They didn't realize, they didn't realize that they were going to change the world of music, not once, but twice. You know, first with the, with the, the Fab Four, that Beatle, you know, she loves you. I want to hold your hand, Beatles. And then the second time when they put on those silly costumes and we call the Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hosco band. Well, amen they, to that. They, yeah. You know, so how many groups did that, that spawned off of that? You know, uh, so, you know, in the beginning, you had the Day Clock Five and the Kinks and the Rolling Stones and all those bands that came after the Beatles. And then when the Sgt. Peppers came out, you had uh, uh, Deep Purple and Pink Floyd and all those bands that came, you know. So it, it, these guys that were teaching, giving lessons at the time didn't want to know about this rock and roll stuff. They right. thought it was going to be gone immediately. So I had to teach myself. I am self-taught. And the benefit of being self-taught is when you're playing to a record, records became my books, and when you're playing to a record, you kind of uh, wonder where you are in the song because you can't read music, you can't write out a chart or anything like that. So the thing I had to do was learn the lyrics to the song. Right. So I would sing along with it to know where I am, and I would realize as I'm singing along, hey, you know, the drummer does his drum fill when the singer stops singing or when the, they they go into a more exciting part like the bridge or the chorus. And I continued taking that with me through my entire career, that whole idea. And I guess that's how, you know, um, like myself and Larry Mullen and Kenny Aronoff and yourself and, uh, you know, you, you see the words to a song and you see the picture that they're trying to paint. And then you uh, add more color with your drums. Well, for sure. And, you know, I mean, I think that's a real interesting point in that, you know, the guys like you and I that are self-taught, you know, that that try to play for the song, we're we're really arrangers instead of anything else. You know, it's it's you learn the arrangement of a song and and you adapt your playing to those arrangements, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And um, yeah, because you're, you're creating something that wasn't there before. And, you know, like with Billy Joel, I mean, Billy could come in with any song that he wrote, sit behind the piano, just him and the piano. And after he's done playing, you'd say, that's a great song. Well, sure. And as a, dr- as a drummer, you would say, that's a great song. I want to be on it. Right. How can I get on that song and, and make it even a little better? You know, right. Well, and, you know, I mean, I think folks, you know, know a lot of that Billy Joel story. And of course, you know, it it goes I'm going to say it. I I was about to say it goes without saying. But, you know, you drummed on albums that have sold over one hundred and fifty million copies. 
So, I, yeah. I, you know, I mean, it's fair to say you're a fairly well heard drummer, right? <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Yes. But uh, you and Billy actually met when you guys were kids. You, now, now, you didn't actually get in the band until, I, I guess, the Turnstiles album, which was mid 70s. But, but you and Billy had crossed paths when you guys were teenagers, right? Yeah, in uh, 1967. Well, we were, he was in a band called The Hassles. I was in a band called The New Rock Workshop, and we both played in the same club. As a matter of fact, there's some, uh, sometimes I see it show up on Facebook. A guy has an uh, announcement kind of thing where it says, appearing tonight at the, the My House was the name of the club, at the My House, The Hassles, and The New Rock Workshop together. So we used to pass each other in the dark and just say hi, you know, like it was that kind of thing. Okay. And, and then, uh, yeah, then it wasn't until 74, the end of 74, that I actually, you know, got uh, with him. So I'm assuming then he had already done like Piano Man and presumably used just studio guys uh, on that record, right? Right. Ron Tutt was the drummer. Okay. Okay. Elvis Elvis's drummer. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, that's that's probably not a bad way to go, right? <laughs> no, no, that's a great way to go. Well, so when you joined the band, you know, I mean, I think it's safe to say for anybody that knows Billy's music, you know, things started getting, I guess, more adventurous in the arrangements and things like that. And this is something that I've always wanted to know. Um, you know, one of those seminal songs, scenes from an Italian restaurant. Okay. Right. I, it's just one of the, epic tracks from that era i've always wanted to know was that all one take for you on the drums you know i, I we were playing that song live before we went in the studio to do it we oh, were okay. playing that song on the at the end of the turnstiles tour but in the beginning we were only playing the brenda and eddie part okay and then he came in uh, uh he came up with the uh the whole scenes from the time restaurant thing and I know that when Phil Ramone came to see us, we were playing it because when we went in the studio to record it, we actually did maybe two takes of it. Wow. And it, it is exactly the same way on that record as it was when Phil Ramone heard it. Wow. And he even said, he said, I knew when not to mess with greatness, you know. Well, I mean, the arrangement of that song, I mean, there's just, you know, all those different parts and, you know, the, the swell, you know, back into kind of the slow section at the end. Right. I mean, it's just, it really is epic. I mean, that's the word that I keep using, but I had always wondered if that was, you know, studio magic that later got adapted to the live show, or if you guys just went in and, and cut it the way it is. And no, that, that one we cut the, the way it is. I'll tell you which one we put together, though, was Angry and the Man was put together. Okay. It started with the beginning with the quick piano thing. Then we did the middle part and then the, the end. Well, you know, when, when a guy like Billy Joel comes in with a song like that, um, you know, and as you said, I want to be on it and see if I can, you know, add something to the to the mix, you know, to the stew, if you will. Um, right. You know, I mean, what are you thinking as a drummer when you hear kind of this epic song, you know, that's that's going to be, you know, five, six minutes, um, and and all those different parts? Do you just go in and, and start 
wood shedding on it? Or do you have an idea of, well, I, I think I know how I can bring it from the A section to the B section. You know, tell us a little bit about that kind of process in his songs. Well, we, um, you, you know, it was great. Um, having the band that we had, uh, the, especially the ones that are on glass houses, yeah, we, we had a band called Topper before we got with Billy's, you know? Sure. So uh, me and the bass player had been playing together. Doug Stegmeyer had been playing together for a while already. So we could almost read each other's minds, you know? Uh, and so when Billy would come in with something, we would have different grooves that we were playing, uh, different feels that we were playing. So we could take Billy somewhere where he would never expect us to go you know, to, to add to the songs. Sure. So there was um, already some chemistry in the band. It, it wasn't just like, you know, all you guys thrown together and let's see what happens. It, there was history there. So that, that's exactly. always good. Yeah. There was history there. So it was easy to reference other things. Like when we did say goodbye to Hollywood, it was easy to reference the Ronettes and, and how Blaine and that whole thing, you know, I want that kind of feel how Blaine, yeah, okay, I'll give you Hal Blaine, but it's going to be Louis DeVito being Hal Blaine. Sure. You know, you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's that kind of thing. There's a lot of referencing going on. Sure. Well, and, you know, I mean, all of those albums are just, you know, they're, they're timeless. They're great. Um, you know, I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, everybody in the band just played so wonderfully well. And, you know, I, I had the great fortune of seeing you guys you know, I want to say it was, you know, mid to late nineties. It was the first time I'd ever gone to a Billy Joel show and uh, man, it was incredible. I mean, everybody in the band was just a, an A player, you, <laughs> you know, right. and, and that's really rare. I mean, I think, especially if it's not just kind of one of those manufactured things, if that makes sense. I mean, it, I could tell that you guys were a true band in every sense of the word. And everybody was having so much fun, you know, well, the, the, the band that plays on the earlier records, like, uh, the band I'm talking about now is, is like Russell Jabbers, uh, Doug Stag by Richie Canada and David Brown was in the band. Also, we, we really, really respected. We love the Beatles, first of all. And we used to get deep into listening to the Beatles and, you know, like, um, if, if you compare uh, John Lennon to, um, uh, let's say, Joe Satriani, you would say John Lennon stinks, you know, compared right. to Joe Satriani. But in the Beatles, John Lennon's part was so important to the construction of those songs. And that's what Billy's band did for Billy. Billy was, was Billy. Billy was the star. He was the piano player vocalist. Richie Cannata, the sax player, was the soloist on top of all that stuff. Right. We were the, 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 uh, the foundation, and we had our parts that we played to fit what was going on on top of it. You know, so we, we kind of figured that out. I mean, it's really weird to think about it now and talk about it, because back in the day, it was like, oh, we're just a bunch of guys in the studio, a bunch of friends having fun. You know, <laughs> right. At, you, at the time, you don't realize how awesome it really is. 
You know, I mean, I, yeah. I'm guilty of that, too, you know, and then you get removed from one of those records, you know, 10, 15, 20 years and you listen back to it. And, you know, I don't know if you're like me, but I'll be critical of my playing and say, gosh, I wish I'd have done that differently. But then when you think of it in terms of the whole song, you say, oh, you know, that actually works really well. And we were we were firing on all cylinders there. Yeah, it's really it, one song in particular was the song "My Life" that we did. Every time I hear that song on the radio, I'm like, "Oh God, I can't stand what I'm playing." But that was a gold single, you know. Well, and wasn't that the theme song to the Tom Hanks show? Yeah, but they somebody recut it. Oh, okay. So they wouldn't uh, have to play. They wouldn't have to pay for the bastard. Oh, of course, you know. Let, so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. of course let's screw the artist out of the royalties that's right. uh, you know i mean that's just the 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 common thing well here's something that that a lot of folks may not know about liberty devito you played drums on meatloaf's bat out of hell right <laughs> no the next album oh, okay uh, okay yeah the next album. i played on two tunes one was called rock and roll and brew and I can't remember what the other one was called, but yeah, it was great. That was the first time I met Davy Johnstone and uh, uh, a bunch of the other guys. And it, it, we really rocked Meatloaf. I mean, it was, it was great. It was a lot of fun. Well, you know, I mean, I didn't know that. And I, you know, doing a little bit of research before this, um, you know, I, I saw that credit and I was like, wow, I had no idea. But, you know, I mean, I guess it's kind of similar in the fact that it's piano-driven music, but, you know, it's completely an opposite genre, I guess, you know. So I, that's that's just a really cool credit to have on the resume, right? Oh, it's very cool credit. I mean, that next to playing, doing two tracks with Paul McCartney and, and you know, just going in the studio with Steve Winwood played on on uh, the Bridge album. He played on the song called "Getting Closer." That was like I grew up listening to Steve Winwood. Somebody wrote in my yearbook when I graduated high school. They said, "Keep your head, and one day you'll play with Steve Winwood." You know, it's like I showed it to him. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's uh, yeah. you know. Sometimes there's divine intervention in things that we don't see. You know. Um, I'm, I'm telling you, it's unbelievable. That's a really cool story. Um, well, Lib, you know, I, I don't mean to jump around so much, but I mean, I, it goes, you know, we all know you played with Billy for, what, 30 years? Something like yeah. that? Yeah, yeah. It's, and, it's not 30, 29 and a half. <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> 29 and a half years, I mean, you guys toured the world countless times, you know, as I right. said already, you know, sold 150 million records. Um, you, you know, I mean, that's just, that's a career to die for, but, you know, you're still out there doing it. And I want to yes. talk about, you know, uh, you know, Lords of 52nd Street, what a band. And, and that's kind of, um, that, that's you and Richie and, and Russell, right? Yes. Yep. Me, Richie and Russell. So tell us a little bit about the Lords of 52nd Street. Was that just kind of a, Hey, we should really keep playing together or, or was there more behind it than just the thought of, you know, we have something special. Let's keep it going. Well, what happened was uh, we got inducted into the Long Island Music Hall of Fame 
Uh, me, Russell, Richie, and Doug Stegmaier, who's since left this world, and uh, we miss him greatly. But um, we got inducted into the Long Island Music Hall of Fame, and they told us that we could play one song. No, oh, of course. We went to play one song. We ended up playing five because the crowd was going crazy. <laughs> <laughs> so what we we had to talk the next day. It was like, you know, a lot of people that are in tribute bands playing our material are making a lot of money, you know? Yeah. Not only did we love to play the songs and love being together again, because we hadn't been together in so long, and, and then to think that, oh, and we can even make a little money at this, you know? Sure. <laughs> so, yeah, but playing the tunes, getting back on that horse again was, was very interesting because we have a guy, you know, of course you need somebody to fill the shoes of Billy, you know? And uh, for the longest time when people used to uh, be in tribute bands and they used to uh, write to me or email, send me an email and say, I'm in a tribute band and uh, we do all Billy Joe songs and we would love to have you play with us. I would always write back. I, I would write back. I played with the real guy. Why would I want to play with you? Right. You know? Right. Because, uh, you know, I, I was bitter about how, what these guys were doing. They're out playing our songs. And, you know, they, they're acting like they're us almost, you know? It's really weird. And um, we're still alive. We're not dead yet. <laughs> what are you guys doing? And so, um, so now we got this guy, Dave Clark. Not, not the guy from the Dave Clark Five, but <laughs> Dave Clark, uh, who, who sounds like Billy, but adds his own thing to it. Sure. And uh, and so we've always had me, Russell, and Richie always had fun, jokes backstage, everything, and we're still doing the same thing. It's still that much fun. We laugh all the time. It, it's just great, and to see the people react after all these years. You know, you you realize I'm sitting behind the drums and I realized, wow, they really did. This was a soundtrack to their life. It's like the Beatles to me, you know? Yeah. Well, so it's, it's pretty incredible. Yeah. I mean, and when you grow up with a band, you know, or, or an artist, you know, however you want to look at it, you know, I mean, I've always looked at albums as, you know, kind of a, a Polaroid, you know, it's a snapshot right. in time, you know, it's what's right. going on today, but those things just, they, they, they become part of the fabric of your memories, you know? So uh, sure. I mean, I, I get where you're going with that and you know, you guys are, you have tour dates, you know, this year, yeah. um, you know, I, I know that there has been some recordings, you know, is this something that you see going on for the long term with those guys? I sure hope so. Well, the way the way I, I feel about it is, as long as Billy's relevant, we're relevant. You know, I mean, like I, I don't know if you saw the the documentary Hired Gun. Oh yeah, that's in, that's that's my next question. So, <laughs> but in, in Hired Gun, when I say if Billy's the father of those tunes, then at least I'm the uncle. You know, because that's that's the way we feel. We 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 had a relationship. You know, you look at the back cover of the of the albums or uh, for credits, and it just says all songs written by Billy Joel, words of music by Billy Joel. It never says arranged by, because we all did that. Right. 
Well, and, you know, I mean, I think a lot of folks don't realize how those things work. Um, you know, I mean, certainly the folks that listen to my show are going to have, you know, a, a basic understanding because this show is kind of geared towards drummers, you know, and, right. you know, as drummers. Yeah, we may not have written the the guitar riff or or the lyrics, but there is something that drummers add to the song that, you know, sometimes just the business decision is, well, the song was written by the singer or the guitar player or the piano player, or whatever the case may be, or song written by Lennon and McCartney, you know, to go back right. to the Beatles thing. But right. you can't take away what a rhythm section brings to that song, even after it's written, you know, it's, Nobody has ever said to me, you know, no, 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 you know, don't put that fill there. Well, maybe they have said that to me, <laughs> but, you know, it's it's nobody has ever said, I want you to play this song exactly like this on this song. You know, I want you to play this exact drum beat or, or you know, whatever the case may be. But it sounds well, like the the business decision was made in Billy's band, at least, that he was going to be the writer and the royalties, you know, the in your case, you would only be paid mechanical royalties, not publishing. And there's a huge dichotomy in those checks. And I think a lot of people just think, well, um, you know, Liberty's out on the road. They're selling millions of records. He must be a bozillionaire, just like Billy. Right. And that's, yeah, right. that's not how that works. <laughs> no, that's definitely not how that works. If Billy was signed to Columbia before we even got in the band. And the, the, the tricky part was that we were always led to believe that we were a band. It was the way we acted, the way we went into the studio and recorded together and traveled together and did so much together. We, there was no line between Billy and the band. Right. You know, but then after a while, when, when different lawyers came in and all of a sudden, you know, you're sitting there and nobody relates to the records anymore, you know, except you, right. you know, uh, that's, that's when it got weird. You know, when, they, when they would, the lawyers would tell Billy, you know, your name's on the marquee. Why are you paying these guys, you know, so much money or stuff like that, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. But you're, you're right about, I see, I believe that a band is only as good as the drama. That, that's what I feel. That's a fact. And if, yes. And if somebody disagree with me, then they, they probably play bass and, or the relief singer <laughs> or something like that. But, but anyway, I, I believe that a band is only as good as the drama. Like take, for example, John Lennon wrote a great song called A Day in a Life, right? Yes. I mean, it's got these really crazy lyrics, crazy chords. Him and Paul come up with this, this crazy chords. But Ringo's drum part is almost like a second vocal because he's answering John after he says every line with, with, with some kind of fill that is total Ringo. Yep. You know, but yep. he didn't get published it. He just got... You know, because he was in the Beatles. He just got what he a part of the group money, you know? Right. Exactly. Well, and I mean, you know, guys like Keith Moon, for example, yeah. you, you know, I mean, if you listen to any of the classic Who stuff, Keith Moon played drums right along with Roger Daltrey's vocal lines. I mean, he, Keith, Keith was the lead in that. You know, usually a band has a lead guitar player. No, 
Keith was the lead. Yes. They, he played around everybody else. You're exactly right. You know, and, you know, that stuff, uh, you know, and I think about, you know, the band, Levon Helm. You know, a singing drummer, you know, he plays the drums differently than anybody else on earth could. And it's not something that you can learn. You either have it or you don't, (laughs) you know, so. So, yeah, a band is only as good as its drummer. There's no doubt about it. Now, you mentioned the documentary Hired Gun, which, uh, you know, I'm going to address my listeners here and say, if you have not seen this movie, don't waste any time. Go find Hired Gun, the documentary. It is a fantastic movie that gives you, you know, it's sort of an inside look at guys like our guest today, Liberty, you know, who, uh, you know, play in these, uh, you know, kind of singer songwriter bands or, um, you know, we just had the conversation, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction from this year. You know, they just aired that on HBO the other day. Um, right. You know, Bon Jovi had two bass players that were inducted w- along with the band and Hugh McDonald being one of them. He has never appeared on an album cover. He has never been listed. <laughs> you know, right. he's never been on any of the concert posters. He's a hired gun, kind of that sideman role. But in the movie, Lib, you know, I, I know that was, you know, shot after you had left Billy's band. Um, yeah. And, you know, I don't want to rehash you know, any ill feelings between you and Billy for sure. But, you know, after I watched the movie, uh, the end credits are rolling. I looked over at my wife, Lisa, and I said, man, Billy Joel must just be a dick. (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, you know, and I know there's two sides to every story, but it was like, my God, how could you do that to your guy? You know, so. Uh, Well, you know, it's funny. It's like some of the reviewers actually said that this movie shouldn't have been called Hired Gun. It should be called Billy Shulton. <laughs> <laughs> but, but no, um, you know, it, it, the thing that's great about that, that documentary is when you see other, other documentaries like The Wrecking Crew, it's about how much fun they had and, and the, the parts they came up with, with for the Beach Boys or the Monkees and all the stuff that they were doing and this is where we recorded that and this is where we recorded that or 25 Feet from Stardom, uh, another uh, great movie, yeah. Another great movie, but it's the background singers, you know, and uh, this is how we did this, and this is how we did. Hard Gun gets dark in places. It does, you know, when it when it talks about the death of, uh, you know, Doug Stegmaier could not deal with the fact that somebody else was on stage making money playing the parts that he created. Yeah. He could not deal with that, and he took his life, his own life, because of it. And you know, like, and when when uh, Rudy Sarzo talks about Randy Rhodes going for a ride in an airplane, and then all of a sudden, that's the end. He, they crash into the bus, you know. Yeah, and uh, it, it gets dark. My, one of my favorite lines is is when uh, Rob Zombie is talking about how a band is together and they got a great sound, and the guitar player leaves. And you have to replace the guitar player. Well, there's probably a thousand guys out there that can play the licks that the guitar player played. But, uh, you know, how many guys uh, look good on stage? Uh, That brings it down to about 20 guys out of of a thousand. 
you know, and then he gets to the end and he goes, and how many guys can you hang with on a bus for 24 hours? Yeah. That brings it down to maybe one guy, you know? Well, Lib, you, you said a mouthful there. I mean, we have covered this, you know, ad nauseum on my program. It's not necessarily, you can go to LA right now and, and throw a rock from anywhere in L.A. and hit a guitar player that can play all the scales and all the right. chords and can play faster than anybody else. You know, right. it, it only takes a 20 second cursory search on Google to find an eight year old kid that can out drum me and you put together. Right. I mean, it's right. it's not hard to find blazing players in this day. No, and age. They're out there. Yeah. Um, it's all about the hang. You know, it's not about the musicianship. You have to be a good human being to make it in this business. That's all there is to it. Um, Because nobody wants to hang out with a guy that's not fun to be around. Like you said, you're on a bus 22 hours a day and the other two two hours of the day you're on stage together. Exactly. You're you're with your, your bandmates more than you are with your wife or girlfriend. You know, it, the yeah. music music is your your mistress. You know, it, well, you know, to a non musician, and I've said this, and and I don't know if I stole this line from somebody or or if I came up with it myself, but you know, I've said it's like being married to to four or five other guys. You know, yes, exactly. It, it, it's. And, you know, if if any one piece of that puzzle isn't right, it doesn't work, you know, and and then you have to go find a replacement. And (laughs) that's where it gets hard. And that's where, you know, kind of that hired gun mentality comes in. You know, I think. Alice Cooper had, you know, quite possibly the the best line in the whole movie. He said, I only get a players because I don't have time for B players. Right, right. He's absolutely right. You know, it, it, it's it's funny because because a lot of people, you know, Billy Billy has a, another drummer now that plays uh, the parts, and they, I, I get people all the time. Oh, he's not as good as you are. No, it's not that he's not as good as I am. I I made those parts up. That those parts have my personality stamped all over them. Right. That guy is not me. He will never sound like me. Right. You know, so, yeah, when you lose the player, you lose that personality. You absolutely do. You know, and, and, you know, I mentioned Keith Moon earlier, you know, I've been in bands that have tried to cover who songs, you know, when you play in a cover band, people say, hey, do you know anything by the who? I can't play like Keith Moon. Nobody can play like Keith Moon. No. And, and nobody no. can play like Liberty DeVito. You know, I mean, I've tried to cover your drum parts over the years. It's not easy to do because it's kind of that confluence of of hard driving rock. There's the jazz influences. There's the Latin influences in your playing. And it's very unique and it's hard right. to do. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of years of learning how to play different things pulled into one thing. You know, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, let me switch gears just a little bit, if you don't mind. I mean, obviously, I know Ringo was an influence on you. Who were some of your guys coming up, 
you know, e- even into your professional career, who are the other drummers that you go, wow? Well, the one guy that blew Ringo off the drum school for a while was Dino Danelli, who was in the, the Young Rascals. Oh, yeah. I, um, first, first of all, for, for two reasons. One, because of the way he played. He was just a tremendous player. Uh, he drove that band. You know, they were only an organ, guitar, and drums. And he really drove that band. And, uh, and I had met them when I was 16 years old. Uh, you know, so here, here you are meeting these guys that are your idols. And the thought that I had about rock stars was so different when I met the, the Rascals. Because when I talked to them, they were like, I was talking to my cousins at a dinner table. You know, <laughs> and it, it, it was actually the first time that I realized wow, you don't have to be insane or you don't have to be messed up and you don't have to get high and get drunk and do drugs and everything like that to make it in this business. You can be a normal person and, and you know, be talented and make it in this business. And they were so nice to me that, that I take that with me still to, till today, that I will be nice to anybody I meet because that kid might be the next, Ringo or the next Dino or the next Libby DeVito or whatever. You know what I mean? Absolutely. So, you know, he, Dino was a great influence on me. Then uh, there was other guys. Um, one, one guy in particular was uh, Jim Capaldi. He was in traffic with Steve Winwood. Sure. He, and if you listen to Billy songs, like, uh, like a, a song, the stiletto, or the stranger, it has that that sixteen note on the hi hat uh, feel, yeah, uh, which comes from Traffic, because Billy was a big Traffic fan too. So you know he he was a big influence on on my playing, and uh, you know going on with Mitch Mitchell and and Ginger Baker, they were great, and then you know move up to Steve Gadd was always a, a great influence, and um, you know one of one of my biggest disappointments in life was when I found out that Hal Blaine was like six of my favorite drummers, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, touche. That's, that, that's, uh, that you bring up a good point there. You you (laughs) know, I mean, you were in the movie with, with the guy, you know, of my generation that is like six of my favorite drummers and that's Kenny Aronoff. You know, I, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, you could go just put on a blindfold in a record store and pull out a CD and you've got about a 20 percent shot that he played the drums on it. <laughs> right, right, right. The, the guy's just everywhere, um, which yeah, is yeah. which is awesome. It sounds like you you have a very eclectic um, list of influences. Um, I don't know a drummer alive that doesn't name Steve Gadd, you know, um, right. And I'm sure you've met Steve many times, you know, being in New York. You know, what's it like meeting a guy like Steve Gadd? What do you say to a guy like Steve Gadd? You know? Well, yeah, the first time (laughs) I met Steve when we were doing the Stranger album because Phil Ramone was producing, you know, working with Paul Simon and a bunch of other people. And he was always using Gadd. As a matter of fact, when we did a song called Get It Right the First Time, it's on the Stranger album. It kind of has that, um, it, that's me trying to be Steve Gadd. And uh, I remember we would come in the studio, record uh, Moving Out, and then try to get it right the first time. Couldn't get it. Record uh, uh, 
another song on the strange album and then try to get it right the first time couldn't get it and finally i said to phil i said why don't you get the guys from stuff that was the band that steve was in at the time to do get it right the first time and he, he looked at me and he goes no you're gonna play it you are gonna play it you know <laughs> so, so um that year when uh, the grammys came about and just the way you are won uh record of the year um we, me and Steve, were together, uh, like hanging out, and I, there's a great picture of us, hearty and hard. <laughs> but yeah, that's where I first met Steve, and then um, you know I, I've seen him many, many times uh, over the years. I, uh, his wife, uh, Carol, used to work for Phil, and um, so there's a little circle of. Uh, of, of friends that were close for a long time. Sure. Well, I mean, I, both of you guys are just, you know, monster drummers and gosh, uh, to, to have been a fly on the wall for that, you know, <laughs> I, mean, well, I, I hear well, these I, stories I, and that's what I think, you know, I wish I could have just been there. The strangest thing is like, uh, all these people that you knew on a record and are now like friends of yours now, you know, yeah, like, uh, well, the first guy that I actually really changed my life in the way he, he played uh, was Carmine Apice. He, yeah. I, I was in that band, the New Rock Workshop, that, that played with Billy's band, The Hassles, and, and the, New Rock, uh, the Vanilla Fudge were going to come and play, um, uh, and the New Rock Workshop was going to open up for them in this little club that we played in. And then somebody came up to me and said, did you ever see them? And I said, no. And they said, they're playing at this other club, the Action House. I had fake proof at the time I could get in. I went in there and they started playing and Carmine played so hard and so loud with so much energy, I, it frightened me. <laughs> it, it literally scared me. Yeah. And then we played the next night with them and me and Carmine have been friends since then. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Really, really. You know, and, and and like to have a friend like Bernard Purdy is like, are you kidding me? This guy is supposed to do him on the record all the time. Yeah, for sure. Well, and you know, I mean. This show that that we're doing right now, you know, it's fairly new. Um, you know, it, it was one of those things that I had talked about for years and years. And, you know, my wife finally said, you know, just do it. You know, I mean, you've got all the gear. Just do yeah. it. Figure yeah. it out. You know, quit talking yeah. about it and, and, and do something with it. You know, never in my wildest dreams did I think I would be on the phone with Liberty DeVito or, you know, <laughs> Doug Clifford from CCR, you know, a yeah. couple of weeks yeah. back. You know, I mean, I just never thought that 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 was. But here's the thing about us drummers. We have such a fraternity and and it seems like go. drummers are just always willing to help another drummer out, you know, uh, De definitely, no matter what. And I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've handed my cymbal bag to somebody because they forgot yeah. theirs at home or, or whatever. You know, it's like, well, here, use mine. We just yeah. we, we all root for each other, which I think is just such a cool thing. Um, you we, know, we really do. It, you know, it, <clears throat> you think that you're by yourself and, and nobody knows who you really are. And you, you just do your job as a drummer. And, and I'm at the NAMM show, the last NAMM show, last February. And somebody says, there's Zigaboo from the meters. 
<laughs> and I'm like, oh my God, you've got to be kidding me. So yeah. I went up to him and I said, you, you, you know, you, you've been an influence. I've, I've got all the album, meter albums and everything. He goes, let me tell you something, Liberty. You have raised the bar to how aggressive drummers have to play these days. I was like, wait a minute. You know how I play? <laughs> <laughs> Are you kidding me? <laughs> See, isn't that amazing? I mean, it's just, you know, and I'm not trying to take anything away from guitarists or singers or anything like that. But, you know, and I've said this before, and my listeners are going to know what I'm going to say. But, you know, when I go see another drummer play, I am absolutely stealing something from his arsenal. Oh. To, to use always. in my own, always, always, but we give credit. It's like, no, 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 no that's not me. I, I stole that lick from Lib DeVito, you know, off of right. a Billy Joel record. Guitarists go, no, I invented that. <laughs> yeah, right, right. I always tell the story, you know, everybody's like, how did you come up with the brushes and, and that lick in the beginning of Only the Good Die Young? Uh, you know, it's got that. Yeah. Right. And I'm like, well, if you listen to Jimi Hendrix, there's a song called Up From The Skies. It starts exactly the same way. And then it does the shuffle on the brushes. Just want to talk to you. You know, yeah. the same thing. You know, or uh, I had a girlfriend uh, when we were doing a Turnstiles album, and there's a song on there called Summer Highland Falls. And it starts with the toms. Uh, you know, Billy s- sings the, the first verse, and then he ends it. See the sad, this all euphoria, bam, bam. And I go, boom, 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 boom. I, I had a girlfriend that loved Joni Mitchell at the time. <laughs> so so that, then, that's a ripoff from a Joni Mitchell record? From Help Me. Oh, it is. Oh, you know, I had never put that together, but that, that is, that's yeah. awesome. See, that, I mean, for this girl, the, the things that we learn on the drum shuffle, you know, this is, that's just so cool, Lib. Well, well, that's because you got it on shuffle. So you, sometimes it lands on something that, normally don't hear yeah (laughs) yeah for sure well lib i want to be respectful of your time you know we're we're getting close to the end of of our time together and i really do appreciate you coming on but you know one of the things that we love to do on this show and we ask all of our guests give us a good piece of advice for other drummers or other musicians and it can be anything you want it to be but you know, share some of the knowledge that you've picked up over your amazing career with us. Well, the thing that I always tell young kids when they say, what should I do to, you know, to get to where you got or, um, you know, well, first of all, you've got to continue to have fun doing what you do. You know, I mean, there's guys, there, there was a, there was a point at one, at one time in my life when, when I would be up on stage with Billy playing Madison Square Garden or something like that. And I was just not happy in the way the music sounded, the way some other guys in the band were acting and stuff like that. And I was just miserable. And there's guys that go and have a jam once a month in somebody's basement. They crack up a few beers and they're having a great time. They're more successful than I was that night on Master Square Garden because they're still having a great time. Also, this business is so difficult these days. 
nothing like it was when, when I was with Billy. There are no A&R people anymore. If you have a band, you've got to make an album that's mixed and mastered and presented to them. They don't, <laughs> you know. Uh, so oh. you have to have the passion to do what you're doing. <clears throat> it's like being in love with somebody. If the passion dies, it, it's over, you know. You have to keep that passion going. And uh, that that's what I think has kept me wanting to play, is the passion. Yeah. You know, just the fact that I love to do this. I just love it. And I love the exchange with the audience because they see how much I love it. And then they love it, too. Yeah. You know, you know, I'm sure you've experienced the same exact thing. You're playing and all of a sudden somebody comes up and goes, that was great. And you're like, whoa. Yeah. I achieved what I wanted to do. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, you know, when, when you're not, uh, you, you know, and I don't want to pick on anybody in, in particular, but if you don't have the gifts that God gave to, you know, Mike Portnoy or, or Mike Mangini or Thomas Lang or Benny Greb, which I don't have those tools, you know, and yeah. I, I could practice for, a thousand hours every day and not get those chops. It's just not in the cards for me. But if you can get in a group of guys and put over the song and put it over the moon, I know exactly what you're talking about. You know, that's what I try to do. And that's all we can do. You know, I mean, I can't play double stroke rolls at 300 beats per minute. I just can't, you know, and and I'm never going to be able to do that. And, you know, so you just try to get the song over. And I I, I don't like uh, uh, listing music with money, but just think about the big money bands. You got the Beatles. Ringo never took lessons. You got uh, uh, U2. Larry Mullen never took lessons. It doesn't do a drum solo. Uh, you got so many bands like that. Look at ACDC. Come on. You don't get much bigger than that. Right. Uh, Bill Rudd. Come on. What does he play? Boom. Da. Boom. Boom. Da. Boom. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That's what, that's what he does. Well, and I think, you know, I, I think we could have you back and do a whole hour on just that, you know, kind of <laughs> how to, how to, yeah. how to write drums for a song. But, you know, I think you've hit on something there. You know, I, there's nothing that I like more than to put on sticky fingers, you know, Charlie, yeah. one of, one of the greatest drummers ever in my opinion, but he's not playing a drum solo through every song. Um, he fits perfectly into the stones. Ringo fit perfectly into the Beatles. I right. think it's just bringing your voice as a musician and putting the song over. And right. I, I had this kind of conversation with, with Steve Gadd. As a matter of fact, I was like, you know, I, I just play like, I don't, I never did a drum solo and, and you know, I don't play like you do. And, and Steve said, no, you play like you do and nobody else plays like you do. Yeah. You know, it was like, Oh, okay. I like that. <laughs> you know? A- absolutely. Well, one of my favorite, one of my favorite, uh, uh, people that 
boost my confidence more than anybody else. I don't know if you know Dom Familiaro. Do you know Dom Familiaro? Oh, sure, absolutely. Jeez. I mean, if you want to get your confidence boosted to a, a new level, you talk to Dom and say, what do you think of my playing, Dom? And he'll say, you know, he always tells me, he made a, com- a, a, com- a comment to a kid once. He goes, liberty is like John Bonham. Every note that you hear Liberty play means something. Just like John Bonham, every note he played meant something. You know, it's like that kind of thing. It's like for somebody to compare you to John Bonham, that's like, whoa, that's pretty cool. Well, yeah, that that gets my attention. You know, I mean, Bonham was my guy, you know, and and uh, and and he was he was if you ask me. He was an R&B drummer that sat behind a big rock set. Yeah, I you're you're right, and you know, um, I, it, it's kind of cool. But you know, I've I've researched Jeff uh, Ockeltree, who was his tech for years, and when right. Jeff showed his tuning, it's jazz tuning. It was just on really big drums, <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> you know, and and that was part of the the soup. You know that that made them so special. Um, you know, Lib, one last thing before we let you go, uh, you know, again, I want to be respectful of your time. We've had so much fun, um, talking with you. I mean, it's just been an honor of a lifetime for me to have you on the show because, uh, you know, it's just so great, but I do want to touch on one thing that, that you do, um, these days. And I want people to, to hear about the organization and that is little kids rock. Little Kids Rock. Yes, yes, yes. Little Kids Rock was started by a, a school teacher. He was a, a math teacher in uh, the worst part of uh, L.A. And his name is Dave Wish. And he um, saw these kids just hanging out. And he thought, you know what? There's no uh, music curriculum in this school. If I, I could give these kids lessons if they want. But they have to stick with it for a year. Well, he started out with 20 kids in California, and now over a half a million kids have passed through Little Kids Rock. And um, it puts instruments in the hands of, of kids in underprivileged schools where the music curriculum has been taken out. And Dave believes that if you teach a kid one chord, he could play 25 songs. You teach him the second chord in that progression, he's up to 50 songs. You teach him that third chord in that three chord progression, he can play 150 songs. And you teach him what they want to know. Because eventually, when they get into music, they will go back to find out where that stuff came from. Because you meet so many uh, musicians or, or ex musicians that people say, Yeah, I played the piano for a year. But, you know, they were teaching me classical music and, and I kind of lost interest in it because I was into the Beatles. You know, so. It's like teaching kid what he knows. I'm sure you grew up playing what you know, right? Absolutely. You know, not playing, not playing uh, a, a Beethoven or something like that. You know, right? I mean, I'm just like you. I grew up, and every dollar that I had either went to drumsticks or a, a, you know a cassette tape or a record that I could play along to, and you know that right. was that was my school was in my mom's basement. You know, and yep. I, I ran home from the school bus 
And, you know, I would play until either I couldn't physically hold sticks anymore because my hands were were bruised and bloodied or, you know, my mom said, "Okay, dude, you got to do some homework, you know, before you're 30 kind of thing. And, you know, I think organizations like Little Kid Kids Rock are, are so important because music curriculum is leaving our schools and you know, there's this big debate all the time. Is rock and roll dead? You know, is rock and roll ever going to make, you know, a comeback to its golden era? And it's not going to if we don't have programs like that one. And I know that you're an honorary board member with them. Um, So I'm going to encourage my listeners, if you got a spare buck or two, it's a fantastic organization that gets instruments into the hands of rock and roll's next generation, you know? Yeah. Free. Yeah. Free. The teachers in the schools, they teach the kids and it's all free for them. It's so, so important. So we appreciate you uh, carrying that message out there and being involved because how cool is it when you walk into, you know, I don't know, PS 187 or whatever, yeah, and, yeah. you know, Lib DeVito is there giving drum lessons to these kids after school. That's just fantastic. The best, the, the, the best part of it is that you get these young kids. I mean, they're, they're so young. They're like, you know, nine or eight or something like that. And I'll go in there with their wish and, their voices will go, we got a special guest here today. His name is Liberty DeVito. Can anybody guess what, does anybody know what band he played with? And one kid will, one, one kid will raise his hand and they will go, okay, what band did he play with? And the kid goes, the Beatles? <laughs> 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 the only name they know. <laughs> Man, that's fantastic. That is so funny. Oh, Lib thank you so much for coming on our show and talking with us. It's just been a great interview. Um, You know, it it is an open door policy here. You know, you are now drum shuffle alum. So anytime you want to come back and talk about anything you got going on with the Lords, um, you know, please feel free to come back anytime. You're always welcome on this program. Thank you so much. Uh, no problem. We really appreciate it. And we'll talk to you real soon, Lib. Okay, buddy. All right. Bye-bye. Take care. All right, gang, that's going to wrap up episode number 16 of the Drum Shuffle. As always, go ahead and hit that subscribe button to whatever platform you're using to listen in today. You are not going to want to miss our upcoming guests, I promise. Uh, We continue to to try to bring you the drummers that you want to hear from. Uh, Also, keep your emails coming. Our email address is thedrumshufflepodcast at gmail.com. We love hearing from you throughout the week. We love answering your questions. Questions. Our web address is thedrumshuffle.com, and you can always find more information on me over at jamieeds.com. Thanks so much for tuning in. We can't do any of this without you. So until next time, may your heads stay strong and your sticks never break. Cheers. Cheers.